Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Fertility Answers Podcast. I'm Neil Chappell, your host, bringing yet another COVID-friendly podcast to the feed. I'm really excited about today. I have been thinking about what direction to go in for September. It really makes the most sense to do PCOS. Um, But I've been thinking about it all month because for me, this is a really, really daunting topic to even consider tackling. This has been an obsession of mine for years. It's what got me into the field in the first place. And to try and condense down this obsession into a 15-minute podcast episode, I I don't think it's possible. But I'm going to do my best because of COVID restrictions. I don't have anybody really here to talk with, so I thought this would be an opportunity for me to just try uh, another format for this episode of just uh, Neil Chappell's Stream of Consciousness. Here is a little window into uh, a little bit about how I think about PCOS. Uh, the first thing that you that the first thing that is important to really have a good foundation on is the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. So essentially what controls the cycle of the ovary. Because uh, if you can understand how that works, then you can understand how it goes wrong. Uh, there are two little centers in the center of the brain, two little areas in the center of the brain that control the ovarian cycle, the hypothalamus and the pituitary. And they sit right in the middle of the brain, and they're actually kind of thermostats for a lot of hormone pathways. But for our intents and purposes, we, what we care about is the uh, growth and release of an egg, obviously. So the hypothalamus secretes a hormone called GNRH, or gonadotropin-releasing hormone. And it has such a short lifespan, or half-life as we call it, that it gets chewed up really quick. And essentially, that means that it works kind of like Morse code or like flashing light signals. You, It's on again, off again, on again, off again. And that pulsatile nature of GNRH allows it to actually serve a really good function. I mean, really think of it like Morse code, how much GNRH is secreted out at any one time and how frequent it is secreted because of its short half-life, because it's it's only in the system for a very short time. The body can be very sensitive to how much you secrete and how often you secrete it. Uh, those two things are called amplitude for how much is secreted and frequency or pulsatility for how often it's secreted. And that changes over the course of the menstrual cycle to promote the growth of an egg, trigger ovulation of an egg, and then promote the uh, lifespan of the corpus luteum after ovulation to, to make progesterone to support an early pregnancy. So without going into too much more detail there, just keep in mind that GNRH is secreted in a specific pulsatile fashion with a certain frequency and a certain amplitude to the pituitary. And that frequency and amplitude dictates how much of the two brain hormones, FSH and LH, are secreted from the pituitary. FSH stands for follicle-stimulating hormone, and LH stands for luteinizing hormone. Both of those then leave the pituitary and go down to the ovary. LH stimulates the theca cell, and FSH stimulates the granulosa cell. And both of these two cells support the growth of an egg. An egg is very job specific. Its only goal is to mature and be ready to be ovulated and be prepared to be fertilized, which means that it really can't do 
anything else on its own. It stores up energy and it stores up uh, reserves and it stores up DNA just so that when it's fertilized, it can grow into an embryo and survive long enough to create a new set of blueprints of DNA with the sperm and, and to sustain those early cellular functions so that once so that it can make it to the stage of implantation and continue to, to proliferate from there. So I, I think of the egg's job as just making a whole bunch of peanut butter jelly sandwiches before it jumps out of an airplane and tries to find its way to home base. So the, the, the point being there that FSH and LH are really important to support and nurture the growth of this egg while it's making all those peanut butter jelly sandwiches. The ratio of LH and FSH is critical because LH makes a precursor to what FSH needs to ultimately support the egg. So the the point by point process is LH goes to the theca cell to make a hormone called androstene dione. And then FSH takes that androstene dione and makes estrogen. And estrogen supports the growth of the egg. So LH, androstene dione, FSH, estrogen, egg support, ovulation. That's basically how it happens. Quick recap, GnRH from the hypothalamus is secreted in a certain pulse and frequency um, slash amplitude to promote the expression of FSH and LH in a very specific and important ratio so that they can go down to the ovary and trigger the theca cell and the granulosa cell to make androstene dione to be converted to estrogen to promote the growth of an egg so that it can make all the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches it needs to jump out of the airplane at the time of ovulation and be ready to be fertilized and try and implant in the womb about a week later. So how does PCOS go awry? That system basically gets thrown off. Something either changes the way GnRH is secreted, changes the way FSH and LH are made, or changes the way that the hormones are produced in the ovary, or all three. Regardless of what happens, the downstream problems in PCOS are because you don't ovulate. If you don't ovulate, you make a bunch of the steroid hormones that lead up to estrogen without actually making the estrogen. And that results in a whole bunch of eggs that are about to ovulate, but can't ovulate. And that means they're making a whole bunch of that androstene dione. And extra androstene dione gets converted into testosterone, which then poisons eggs. So you can see how, regardless of how you get there, if you're not ovulating, you're, you're, you're growing up eggs to the point of ovulation that are making the steroid hormones, but because you're not ovulating, you're not moving past that step. Therefore, you're building up the precursors androstene dione, which turns to testosterone, which turns to poison, for lack of a better word. Why does this happen? Really, one of the jobs in reproductive endocrinology is figuring out why did this person get to this step in the first place? Why did this patient not why does this patient have an issue with ovulation that leads to this this polycystic ovary problem well just to name a few sometimes if you have excess adipose or fat tissue there are hormones inside that fat tissue that can convert some circulating steroid hormones and by the way steroid hormones are estrogen progesterone testosterone and a few others that are less familiar the fat tissue can convert some of those peripheral circulating steroids in the blood into weak estrogens, and those weak estrogens go back up to the brain and change the GnRH pulsatility and amplitude to affect FSH and LH secretion. 
extra androgens can decrease what's called sex hormone and bind sex hormone binding globulin sex hormone binding globulin is an important think of it as like a bus that circulates around in the blood the body's really good at using sex hormone binding globulin as a sponge to soak it up so it doesn't exert too many effects but in pcos this production is decreased due to either extra fat tissue extra insulin or extra androgens or testosterones which we'll come back to of course insulin resistance is a major driver and I'll try and touch on that in more detail uh, in just a second. Sometimes uh, folks that have PCOS make too much LH, and they make too much LH in a way that prolongs its half-life, prolongs its expression. So it sticks around in the blood longer and, and stimulates the theca cell more, making too much precursor and can't be converted into estrogen by FSH. Um, sometimes the adrenal gland, another hormone that sits on top of the kidney, makes too much male hormone as well due to extra enzyme activity or extra stimulation. And also sometimes the brain, developmental programming effects, genetic effects, or, or other predispositions that make it uh, difficult for the brain to sense the production of estrogen, testosterone, and other important hormones from the ovary. So it the, the, the brain isn't aware that the ovary has too many eggs that need to be ovulated and it never sends the signal down to ovulate there is some really fascinating research over the past five years or so on a hormone called kispeptin and its receptors and how that how they integrate into the hypothalamus to control the pulsatility and amplitude of gnrh and if they can't listen to the production of estrogen progesterone and testosterone and androstenedione from the ovary if they can't read that signal then they can't tell the brain how to secrete GnRH appropriately to promote the final maturation steps of the egg and ultimately ovulation. And finally, we notice that the ovary in a PCO patient is a little overgrown on the thecal cell side. So the thecal cells are just more hyperactive and therefore they make more androstenedione and that gets converted into the androgens slash testosterone as well. How do you diagnose um, PCOS is another common question. I mean, probably the most common question I get from patients is, uh, do I have PCOS? It's actually really straightforward to diagnose. Um, you need two of three things, preferably all three, but really just need two of three. You need irregular cycles, which is defined either by no periods by the age of 15 or three years after breast development or cycles uh, greater than 35 days or less than eight cycles a year. And you need some evidence of, of high male hormone production. And you can arrive at this either by labs or you can also just ask. So you'll have increased hair growth, central hair growth, face, chin, chest, abdomen, acne, oily skin, um, male pattern, balding, those kind of things. And then finally, polycystic ovarian morphology on ultrasound is probably one of the more famous ones. And many, many patients will say, I had an ultrasound that said I have cysts. It's normal to have some form of activity in the ovary. It's normal to have small little follicles in the ovary. Those are eggs that are waking up and growing and you, your ovary should be dynamic and should have those. But having, having a large number in one or both of the ovaries showing an increased ovarian volume uh, may be abnormal and may be a sign of chronic anovulation. So that's the diagnosis. One of the biggest issues with PCOS, particularly here in, in, in the Southern United States is insulin resistance. So depending on the studies you read, anywhere from 75 to 95% of pa patients with PCOS have insulin resistance. Um, the, so the vast majority of patients with PCOS have this issue, or they're even overtly diabetic by the time we see them. What exactly does this mean? Um, insulin resistance means that you're resistant to insulin. 
Why is that important? It means that you have a genetic predisposition to not listen to insulin very well. Insulin, one of insulin's main jobs is controlling blood sugar. So I, I tell people my cracker story. So here's my cracker story. When Jane, when Jane eats a cracker, the body sees the carbohydrate and says, I need to control that. I don't want the blood sugar to get too high. So it secretes insulin. If your body's resistant to insulin, then your body has to make more insulin to overcome that resistance. And the extra insulin controls the blood sugar. So you're not diabetic because diabetic means that you have too much blood sugar in a nutshell, but you make too much insulin to control that blood sugar. And that's a really important distinction because insulin doesn't just control the blood sugar. It actually goes to the brain and affects the brain's ability to listen to steroid hormones. It goes to the ovary and tells the ovary to make more male hormone. It goes to the liver and affects how the liver metabolizes insulin, subsequent insulin, sex hormone binding globulin, and blood sugar. And it also wears out the pancreas uh, by, by forcing the pancreas to make more insulin than is typically physiologically needed. Uh, it goes to the fat tissue and says store more weight along the midriff and the, and the thighs as well. And of course, that fat tissue is hormonally active. That's, that's really the, the main problem is that, that the extra insulin, because someone is insulin resistant, pushes on the liver, pushes on the fat tissue, pushes on the brain, pushes on the ovary, and perpetuates increased male hormone or increased androgen production, which poisons the eggs, forces chronic anovulation, results in PCOS. Studies have shown that insulin resistance leads to hyperandrogenemia or elevated androgens, and now studies are also showing that hyperandrogenemia can lead to insulin resistance and vice versa. There have been some really, really elegant studies that have come out over the past few years showing, showing both. There was recently a study, uh, an animal study that came out this year in 2020 um, that showed using really well done techniques that if you block the androgen receptor in certain tissues, then it's difficult to have that animal become insulin resistant. But if the androgen receptor is in place and you give extra androgens, then that does lead to insulin resistance. Uh, they did a great job of showing that in the brain and the ovary and, and several other sites. And that was a really exciting study because not only does it show that insulin resistance um, drives androgen production, but also androgen production drives insulin resistance. So you can see how they're intricately linked and you can see how the majority of PCOS patients do have this issue. This is a really, really important point in PCOS that insulin resistance plays a major role because we've seen a lot of chronic disease stem from insulin resistance because insulin promotes this extra fat tissue deposition and it also promotes androgen production, but it also promotes inflammation. And inflammation over time can, can cause issues. And that's why you see more heart disease, more depression, more risk for strokes, and other kind of problems in, in long-term PCOS that's not well controlled. Therefore, I don't have to make a very strong argument for why recognizing and controlling the insulin-resistant component of PCOS is a big deal. Number one, it's one of the main fuels in the fire to PCOS. Number two, it's treatable. If you can address insulin resistance, then you can significantly take some of the uh, impact of the impetus or the driver of PCOS off the table, and you can make PCOS a much more manageable disease. And it also, meanwhile, takes away a lot of the stress and inflammation in the body. And so now this patient with PCOS will have more regular cycles, 
often they'll say, man, I sleep better, I feel better, my joints don't hurt as much. You're lowering their risk for cardiovascular disease and diabetes and other things down the way. And their pregnancies. Pregnancy rates go up, miscarriage rates go down, other subsequent risks in pregnancy also go down, like gestational diabetes and things like that. Uh, that's why I'll, I'll sound like a broken record when I talk to my patients about PCOS because I'll say, hey, we, you know, we need to look at this. A lot of people will say, I don't have diabetes, don't test me, my A1C is fine. A1C is a measurement of blood sugar. And again, with insulin resistance, your blood sugar is going to be normal. That's not the problem. The problem isn't blood sugar. The problem is too much insulin. The problem is you're making a whole bunch of insulin. Therefore, you really want to check insulin levels along with blood sugar levels in someone that you're suspicious about PCOS. And as far as treatment goes, to give a broad overview on how to address insulin resistance, probably the two biggest tools in our toolbox are diet and exercise. If the problem in insulin resistance is over-spiking insulin, that that's what leads to the downstream effects, then really being conscious of what you are eating plays a major role because we know that there are certain foods that spike insulin and there are certain foods that don't. And in general, what we what we find is a, a diet that's well balanced with healthy fats, high fiber, that's low in carbohydrates and, and has minimal simple sugars uh, in it is really going to be the best for not giving your body the signal to over secrete uh, insulin. Exercise is also exceptionally important because it increases sugar receptors in the muscle to kind of put any extra sugar in the blood to use so that the body never has a chance to see it or use it. And so you don't make too much insulin. It also increases your resting metabolic rate. Um, so, you know, the CDC and several other important organizations recommend at least 150 minutes of exercise a week, at least two days a week. If you're trying to lose weight, bumping that up to around 250 minutes. And you want to have a nice blend, not just cardio, but also you want some weightlifting. You want to, you want to put some resistance in the joints. You want to build skeletal muscle mass. Uh, it's way too ambitious to even begin to talk about birth control pills for the treatment of, of PCOS uh, and, and treating other issues in PCOS like uh, hirsutism and things like that. Hirsutism is, is hair growth. I'll talk a little bit more about those uh, if we ever wind up doing a podcast on the non-fertility uh, aspects of PCOS, uh, because obviously, tr tr well, maybe not obviously, but but birth control pills are a fantastic treatment for PCOS. Actually, it's one of the reasons why probably it's probably the mainstay treatment for PCOS. But in my world, we don't really use it a lot because it's difficult to get pregnant if you're on the birth control pill. It turns out, and, and then treating. Uh, hair growth, many of the treatments that we use for treating uh, abnormal hair growth in the face and chin and chest, etc., are contraindicated in pregnancy. So I, I commonly don't do that either. The, one of the other treatments for minimizing insulin resistance effect in PCOS, just to kind of go back to what we were talking about, is metformin. That's probably a whole entire podcast in itself, but it's good at, at decreasing the liver's production of internal blood sugar, and it decreases uh, sugar uptake from the gut as well. Uh, which helps promote less insulin resistance in the body. I would say this probably one of the most common drugs that we see used uh, in the realm of fertility. Nowadays, there's a bunch more drugs out there as far as options for PCOS. And so I, I would highly encourage anybody out there to talk to their doc about um, their PCOS, what are the contributing factors in their type of PCOS, and should they be concerned or should they be thinking about insulin resistance as a, as a matter of course as well. I guess that is a quick stream of consciousness on the important facets of uh, the kind of mechanisms in place for PCOS and, and the things that I think about 
uh, without going into too much detail. Uh, honestly, I could probably talk for a day on this uh, uh, nonstop. It's really hard to even begin to find a place to stop to talk about PCOS. But essentially, you know, the takeaway points are the hypothalamus and the pituitary are very, very sensitive seats in the brain that control GnRH, FSH, and LH to orchestrate the growth and release of a healthy follicle. And if they're off or the ovaries off, then you get a crowded ovary making too much of the wrong kinds of hormone, which completely change the system. Uh, and you see changes in the liver, the fat tissue, the brain, the ovary, the adrenal gland, the pancreas, and all of these lead to increased androgen production, usually increased insulin production. And that increases stress, inflammation, blood sugar, blood insulin, cortisol, DHEA, and many other downstream ramifications that all have to be addressed in a very orchestrated manner to kind of get as close to homeostasis or an even healthy balance as you can. A lot of the success in PCOS deals with lifestyle management, meaning addressing what you know uh, helps your body work the most efficiently through conscious diet and regular exercise and avoiding anything that exacerbates these symptoms. With understanding and a little bit of help from drug therapy like metformin, this is a very manageable, very treatable, admittedly not curable disease. One day we'll go into the genetics and the um, developmental inheritance aspects of this. And I would love to spend a podcast talking just about the brain because the intricacies of that feedback loop are, are really, really, really fascinating. But for now, I think I got to leave it at that so I can get back to seeing patients. Uh, I hope you guys are enjoying the feed and, and enjoying the, uh, the episodes. Any feedback at all would be more than welcome. You can email us at podcast at fertilityanswers.com. Um, but until then, I uh, look forward to being back for next month's uh, episode. Thanks again for listening, and y'all have a good one.